You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Columbia. Hello and welcome to Columbia Calling. I'm Emily Hart and this week I'm chatting to literary translator and writer Frank Wynne, chair of this year's International Booker Prize panel and an award-winning translator in both Spanish and French. Frank is translator of one of Colombia's best-known authors, Cali's very own Kurt Cobain figure, Andres Caicedo, who we'll be discussing later today. But first, your top news stories for this week. These are your top news stories from Colombia for the week of January 31st, 2022. The UN has announced that Colombia is one of 20 global hunger hotspots, where people will be at risk of acute food insecurity in the coming three months. The Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations published the list this week, which includes countries in sub-Saharan Africa, Afghanistan and Myanmar. In Latin America, only Honduras, Haiti and Colombia were included. The reasons given by the FAO for Colombia's food insecurity are economic challenges caused by the pandemic, the rise in food prices, internal conflict and migratory crisis. The FAO estimated that 7.3 million people in Colombia, of a population of around 50 million, are food insecure. More than 1 million of those are Venezuelan migrants. However, by other measures, the problem is even more serious. According to a study of the National Food Bank Network, 54% of people in Colombia were food insecure last year. According to the latest report by Colombia's own statistics agency, 30% of Colombians do not have enough money for three meals per day. Meanwhile, the International Monetary Fund highlighted on Tuesday that Colombia, along with Chile and Peru, shows surprising growth and strong economic recovery. That growth is marked by inequality, most notably a rise in food prices which directly affects those with the least purchasing power. The Constitutional Court has kicked off the year with a historic decision. They have declared a massive violation of Colombia's 2016 peace accord with the FARC. The court declared a state of unconstitutionality due to generalised non-compliance with security guarantees. Some 300 former FARC combatants have been murdered since the signing of the peace deal. Former combatants from all over the country had filed eight separate tutelas, legal complaints alleging a lack of security guarantees among other breaches of the agreement by the state. The court declared that former combatants are suffering a massive violation of their fundamental rights. The court ordered that security measures are increased, asking Congress to promote laws and measures to protect former combatants and social leaders with a broader vision of security. The government have responded they are not in agreement with the ruling, but will respect its legality. 
and there have been new massive displacements in Buenaventura due to more territorial disputes between guerrilla group the ELN and armed group the AGC. In Bajo Calima, in Valle de Cauca, at least 70% of the population has been displaced by confrontations between armed groups, which this year have left at least nine civilians dead. Nearly 500 families from the lower basin of the Calima River, a rural area of Buenaventura, have left the territory for Cali since mid-January. There are also still territorial disputes in the urban centre of Buenaventura due to more armed groups displacing still more people, many of whom continue to arrive in the city of Cali. And Colombia's elections are increasingly under threat of violence and fraud, particularly in the areas already acutely affected by violence, according to a new warning issued by the Electoral Observation Mission. In areas known as PDET areas, territories most affected by violence, poverty, illegal economies and state absence, residents are this year to elect 16 so-called peace seats as part of the peace process. These are congressional seats, especially for victims of conflict. The mission has, however, warned that fraud and violence threaten those elections in around 58% of those territories. The majority of assassinations of community leaders so far this year have also taken place in PDET regions. So far this year, think tank Indepaz count 13 murders of social leaders and 13 massacres. Among those murdered this year is the leader and former coordinator of the Indigenous Guard, Albaido Camayo, who was murdered in Buenos Aires, Cauca, this week. Reportedly responsible are a dissident FARC group who were trespassing on Indigenous territory. Camayo is the third member of the Indigenous Guard to be murdered in this territory within two weeks. And coronavirus cases are falling in Colombia now at a daily average of 18,000 new cases, fallen from over 30,000 earlier this month. Antioquia, however, found itself on red alert for occupation of intensive care unit beds only last week. 79% of Colombians have now had one dose of vaccination. 60% are now fully vaccinated. 10% have received booster jabs. Those were your top stories for the week. Hello and welcome to Columbia Corning. I'm Emily Hart and this week I'm chatting to literary translator and writer Frank Wynne, chair of this year's International Booker Prize panel and an award-winning translator in both Spanish and French. If you haven't read his translation of The King Kong Theory by Virginie Despont, sort yourself out and get your hands on a copy. But Frank is also translator of one of Colombia's best-known authors, Cali's own Kurt Cobain figure, Andres Caicedo. Thanks for joining us, Frank. Lovely to be here. So I'd love to start right at the beginning. Your relationship with the Spanish language, how and where did that start? Well, my relationship with the Spanish language is preceded by my relationship with the French language, which is preceded by um, breaking up with my boyfriend and telling all my friends I was moving to Paris which happened in, I don't know, 1984, when I was 22. I expected <laughs> them all to say, um, oh, no, please don't go. But they said, oh, no, that's good. We'll come and visit. <laughs> um, 
So through a very roundabout series of accidents, I moved to Paris, got a job that had nothing to do with translation, worked in a bookshop, moved to London, worked in another bookshop, ended up working in publishing comics and graphic novels. From there, ended up with a uh, brief seven-year career building the internet in the 1990s. And at some point during all of that, somebody asked me to translate a book from French. This I did. Uh, I enjoyed it enormously. I enjoyed it so much that I thought I could maybe make a living out of being a translator. This is not true. I mean, it was at least another seven years before even half my income came from literary translation. Um, um, but one of the things that quickly became clear was that if I was going to uh, translate full-time for a living, because I had, I had at that stage translated three or four books from French, but I had done this evenings and weekends while holding down a, a full-time job. And anyway, once the full-time job was gone, so was the salary. And uh, I thought, okay, I can't do this. So I can't, well, I can't do this and live in London. So I moved to Costa Rica because you do. Um, I had been on holiday to Costa Rica once before I liked Costa Rica. I arrived in Costa Rica knowing no more Spanish than the lyrics to La Bamba. And I can tell you that in all of my life since then, and that is a good, you know, um, I don't know, 25 years ago, I have never needed to use the phrase, yo no soy marinero, yo no soy marinero, soy capitán. I feel like that's an awful shame, Frank. One is always looking for an opportunity to use that exact language. Well, exactly. Uh, so I learned Spanish by living in Costa Rica and later living in Argentina while spending my daytime translating books from French into English. It was a very confusing time um, <laughs> because... Uh, you would spend your whole day working from language A into language B, and then you would spend your evenings going out in the hope that you might absorb some of language C. Uh, so this I did. Um, Costa Rican Spanish, if you're going to learn Spanish, is possibly the easiest to learn. They have a very, very neutral accent. Um, they're very polite. They use stead everywhere. It's all great. So, But after a couple of years living in Costa Rica, I missed you know, I wanted a bit of culture, I wanted whatever. I thought, fine, I'll move to Buenos Aires. That'll be great. I moved to Buenos Aires and discovered I cannot understand a single word that anybody in this city is saying. I had the exact same experience. I quit quit my full-time job at 27 and went to Costa Rica, because you do. And I have to say, I didn't know the lyrics to La Bamba, and it was only this year I learned the lyrics are not ba la 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 bamba <laughs> Until I was the age of 31. I believed. Um, but absolutely, Argentinian Spanish is a whole different kettle of fish, which is in itself a phrase that makes no sense in any other language except English. And I have tried to explain it even to Americans, um, yeah. both their confusion and mine, actually. Apart from anything else, Americans don't have fish kettles. Therefore, how can you understand? Tell me, Frank, who has a fish kettle? I don't have a fish kettle. My mother still has a fish kettle. Does she? she does. I'm glad to know someone she does. It has not been used since 1973, <laughs> but, you know, she does still have one. So, yeah, Argentina, um, where the Spanish sounds like a cross between Portuguese and Italian. Um, uh, so I relearned Spanish there. Um, but I had been living in Latin America for about 10 years before I actually translated anything from, from Spanish. So I had spent all of my time uh, translating from French. Uh, mm. and I was doing 
some reading in Spanish for publishers. So publishers, in order to decide whether they want to buy a book, will generally ask someone they know to read it in that language and provide a report. So I would do that. So I did that. And eventually, um, um, Kirsty Dunseith asked if I wanted to translate a novel and from Spanish. And I was a bit reluctant, but I thought, okay, fine. I have to take the plunge at some point. Um, if I had known it was a 900-page Spanish novel about the Spanish Civil War, um, I might have been a bit more wary because I think, you know, my entire knowledge of the Spanish Civil War came from a history class when I was 15 that lasted, you know, about an hour. Um, so that didn't help. Um, but it did have... Um, it did have a starring role for a um, purple plastic dildo. So, um, you know, every good family saga should have. <laughs> well, it begins at a funeral, you know, of the, pa- the funeral of the patriarch. And at some point, the purple plastic dildo appears, you know, somewhere between General Franco and, you know, peace on, in our time. That's certainly how I, that's how I learned it. I was looking around various bits of the internet to try and collect together a list of writers that you've translated in Spanish. And you've translated writers from Spain, Peru, Colombia, Mexico, Argentina, and Cuba. Yes. So your difficulty moving between types of Spanish, I, I feel, very quickly disappeared in a way that might I mean, one of the things you very quickly realize is that there is no such thing as Spanish. There are a variety of Spanishes. Mm. Um, and so, um, you know, uh, translating from, I mean, the, the, the really crucial ones is where you think, you know, you're, you just translated a novel from, from Colombia and somebody's asked you to translate a novel from, from Peru. I mean, they're next door neighbors for God's sake. How much different can it be? It can be completely different. Um, so, um, and then there's, you know, uh, Mexican Spanish, which is its own thing, Cuban Spanish, which is, you know, entirely littered with uh, Yoruba, and uh, we'll get to this when we get to Caicedo as well, uh, because of yeah. salsa and because of, of the um, um, the African uh, diaspora living in, in, in Cuba. Um, so, um, and it's not simply that the slang in all of these countries is different, but dialectically, all of these Spanishes have grown up to be very, very different. Um, yeah. So, yeah, um, um, really, really strange every time somebody says, here's a different country that speaks Spanish. Would you, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping for Equatorial Guinea because actually they, Spanish is one of their, you know, languages. So, yeah. Know, I mean, complete the set. Happy I, Families or Go Fish or whatever it is you're playing. I feel like <laughs> <laughs> I think, it's I know, I think as, as well as there being all types of Spanishes that you have to wrangle with, you know, translation is not, it's not a science. And that, that line between being completely true to the exact words as you find them in a dictionary of a writer and actually capturing what is in the book, you know, literary translation is its own art. Yeah. I mean, basically your ability to understand a language is no guarantee of your ability to be able to translate a single sentence. Um, uh, Translation is, a form of interpretation or a form of performance or a form of, you know, if I translate uh, a book, then not only will it be different to the book if it had been translated by anybody else with the same um, 
language sets. Um, but actually, it would probably be different if I'd done it three years ago, and it would probably be different if I do it five years from now. Um, um, you are writing what you hear, and what you hear is not simply meaning, which is, I mean, the, the, the most brutish, least important bit that language does. It is cadence <laughs> and rhythm and and humor and sarcasm and register and um, all sorts of things that you have to be attentive to and which you favor. You know, one of the things that people coming out of, who study translation these days, um, um, come and say, you know, do you favor domestication or foreignization? So, you know, making the thing sound much more English or trying to include lots more foreignization. And I've always said, actually, that's a decision you have to make on a sentence-by-sentence, passage-by-passage, sometimes word-by-word basis. You can't just um, you can't just say, I'm going to foreignize this book. Um, uh, so, for example, I do lo- I love it when I can either calc that is bring in words from other languages and just and just keep them i also love it when i can translate um uh, a simile or a metaphor uh directly even though it doesn't exist that way in 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 english because it's so obvious what it means there's a lovely little um uh, argentinian novel i translated called seven ways to kill a cat which takes place in the barrios um outside of buenos aires um which are I mean, shanty towns in the sense that, you know, a lot of it is literally just corrugated iron and bits of board right. and, and, and whatever. It has no running water and you steal your electricity off the pylons and, and, and whatever. So the, the, the teenagers in this are sort of recognizable, but also not recognizable. So the first thing I did is I didn't tra- translate any of their names. Um, one of the things that is crucial in Argentina is that nobody reaches adulthood and is still referred to by their own name. They all have a nickname. Um, and uh, it doesn't matter whether it's gringo or treco or pibe or, or whatever, um, but they all have a nickname. I mean, most people in the English-speaking world have yet to work out that uh, che Guevara's name is not Che, nor is Che <laughs> a version of his name. Che is just a word in Argentinian Spanish that means, hey, you. Mm-hmm. He said it all. Um, but in Seven Ways to Kill a Cat, one of my favorite ones was, so there is a point when uh, the narrator's girlfriend is talking about her father who runs a local bar and a local kind of gang member. And um, she says that these days they are entre culo y calzón, which is a very standard phrase in Spanish and would normally translate as to be as thick as thieves. But as thick as thieves is, A, a really horrible cliche, it goes back to sort of 18th century thieves can't, so it doesn't even really mean anything anymore. Right. Um, so in my version, she says, these days they're as tight as arse crack and underpants, <laughs> which is a very visceral thing. That you know exactly what it means. Beautiful. <laughs> I love it. Um, one thing I'd love, I'd love to get from you, because you've been doing this for a number of years, um, and my sense is that there has been a snobbery or resistance to literature and actually culture in translation for a long time in English. We're very resistant and snobby and weird about it. Um, the International Man Booker has just started 
only a few years ago to share the prize between the translator and the original writer. Mm-hmm. We're starting to get really hit shows in translation. We've had Squid Game, Casa de Papel, which is Money Heist in English. Money Heist, yes. Yeah, and, and Fitzcarraldo, who are a, a publisher that you work for. Is, is this a change or am I being optimistic? Is, it, is it is a change, but actually we've been here before. I mean, all of the great publishing houses of um, the mid-20th century, um, André Deutsch um, and George Weidenfeld and um, Galantz and so forth, were all founded by um, um, European, largely Jewish refugees fleeing, uh, fleeing Europe, and they all focused on translation. Um, uh, and translation was a very big part of, of what they did. Um, it is unthinkable now that uh, when Penguin first launched its first paperback book, and that was in, what, 1946 or 47, uh, its first paperback book was a book in translation. Um, not only that, it was a book in translation, uh, tra- uh, which was a biography of Wordsworth written by a French author. I mean... Who does things? You know, these, these days, people, um, you know, we can't we can't have you know foreigners talking about our our past. But there is, I mean, English cultural hegemony is you know the whole kind of oh well, everyone speaks English. Um, well, mm. a no, they don't. Um, and b, even if they did, again, they speak English. I mean, the English are. I mean, the English language publishing is relatively snobby about you know. Um, Scots novels and novels, you know, um, you know, it's like, uh, oh, it's all very Irish or it's all very Scottish or it's, you know, uh, I mean, if you look at the, the huge, um, um, not quite scandal, but there was a lot of upheaval in the late 50s, early 60s. So uh, when you get um, John Osborne's Look Back in Anger, Working Class Voices, and when you get Alan Silito, Saturday Night, Sunday Morning, and Loneliness of a Long Distance Runner, writing in, in, in Northern Dialect, mm-hmm. um, it was completely unknown to, to, to readers. Um, it was another what forty years when um, Terry Christian became the first, you know, professional Northerner to appear on on Channel Four, and uh, when the um, when the Scottish um, TV show Tutti Frutti with Robbie Coltrane and and a variety of other people was first screened in the nineteen eighties, people in in England asked for it to be subtitled because they said they couldn't understand it. Um, so there is this great snobbery. I mean, I, I, I've always said that, you know, I mean, in around, so, I mean, if you're German or if you live in Germany or Spain or Italy or, or, um, China and you see, um, Squid Game or Casa de Papel or whatever, and then you see it in the original with subtitles. And mm. it'd be true if you're watching, um, you know, um, uh, the Dirty Dozen or, you know, E.T. Um, if a French film is really, really successful, then what happens is an American director buys the rights and remakes it. So, you know, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, uh, the, the extraordinary film, Abre los Ojos, a great Argentinian film, uh, has the rights bought and becomes the hideous aberration that is Tom Cruise's Vanilla Sky. <laughs> um, and there are lots and lots of these where rather than... than 
enjoying or uh, wishing to engage with a culture that is not ours, uh, what we have a tendency to do is just, um, you know, take it and, and remake it after our own fashion so that it's, you know, grander. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, things have changed. I mean, things have changed again. So the great publishers of the 40s, 50s, 60s, all ended up got, get, getting bought up by each other and now represent what are called the big five. Uh, so what you do is you wait for a minor publisher to publish them, and then if they're successful, you steal them. Um, it's a bit like record labels. Um, uh, but um, but no, I mean, what not only Fitzcarraldo, but what Charco do for, for Spanish, what Istros do for Eastern European, what Pyrene do for short fiction, um, and what... A dozen other uh, tilted access do for for um, Asian and Southeast Asian languages. Seagull do for Indian languages. There has been in the last twenty years. I mean, basically since the point at which I became a translator, and uh, there has been an upsurge in people publishing translations. There has been a greater focus on who translators are and what they do. And so, not every question you get asked is. But I thought they had computers to do that now. <laughs> well, that must be relieving for, for somebody who is doing their own, I believe, artwork within within the world of translation. But, but, yeah, I mean, the problem with machine translation, and, you know, machine translation has its uses, but um, um, machine translation cannot understand context, cannot understand dialect, and cannot tell a joke. <laughs> uh, it doesn't realize that a pun is a pun. It just looks at the words and, and gives you a variant on those words. That's all it can do. So, yeah, I mean, uh, while lots of areas of translation have been, or technical translation, have been um, uh, encroached upon by machine translation, literary translation will be the last to go because actually uh, it says what I say it says, as it were. You know, I need to interpret it and I need to perform. And, and you know, most of what that is, is you need to find a voice. Uh, you need to uh, you need to find a voice that works for the voice that it is that you can hear when you're reading it. Right. Uh, and you need to try and do that in a way that isn't, um, where you're not... Um, imposing Englishness over it. So, I mean, if, if our, you know, if the character is, you know, a, a, uh, a farmer in, um, in Peru, uh, and he clearly speaks with quite a rural accent, I can't have him sounding like a character out of the archers, or I can't have him sounding like a farmer from Wyoming. So you have to create by using whatever the original language is. And in in Peru, I can use bits of Quechua and I can use, you know, certain rhythms. Um, and you also basically, there are ways in which rural people who tend historically to have been less educated people tend to speak and um, how they construct sentences and so forth. So you're creating a fake dialect. You're not You're not taking a dialect and just slapping it on top of it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that's, you know, that's something that each person by definition will do differently, um, because, um, what they will hear when they read is different and the voice they will create is different. Um, and I would say a lot of your translations have such powerful and specific voices. Um, Vernon Subutex is a very, very distinct voice that has been created that is, you know, both very French and 
totally imaginable as an English person whose whose French died about the time I started learning Spanish. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I uh, unusually for a translator, I actually have an agent, and my previous agent, sadly no longer with us, David Miller, used to say, "You need to translate less and write more books." <laughs> and I said, "You don't really understand, David. By being a translator, I can write books that I could never have written. Um, you know, I can write books books that are set in the Ivory Coast or Algeria or." Um, or the mountains of Peru uh, during the Shining Path, or whatever. I have been all of these writers. I have had to immerse myself in them and and become them for however long I was. And therefore, I get to write the sort of novels that I couldn't even imagine, let alone you know write in the first place. Why would you give that up? <laughs> I I absolutely love that idea. And actually, someone you know to segue into Caicedo, someone whose mind is maybe not a place that one would necessarily want to spend time or choose to inhabit um, is someone that you you really went in on. Um, Andres Caicedo was from Cali, where he lived nearly all of his very short life. Uh, his best known work, Que Viva La Musica, uh, in translation is called Live Forever. Um, the story goes, Frank, and I'd love to know if you think this is apocryphal, that he received the first published copy of that book and killed himself on the same day at 25 years old. Um, yes, um, that is absolutely true. Um, in a previous novel, he had said to live beyond the age of uh, 25 is obscene, and though that is almost certainly not why he took his own life. Um, yes, the final uh, published copies um, arrived the day he took um, whatever it was, 22 Nembutal. Um, mm. Caicedo was a fascinating person um, because... I mean, the only finished novel is Que Viva la Musica. Um, uh, there are maybe three or four dozen short stories. There are probably three to 4,000 film reviews. There are plays, there is poetry, there are screenplays that he wrote um, specifically for Roger Corman, um, because he desperately wanted to get Roger Corman to film a screenplay. I mean, he began writing Give You La Musica while he was in L.A., trying mm. to accept Roger Corman, one of the, you know, strangest, sleaziest, you know, um, di directors of his career. Um, um, he was... There was nothing that did not interest him. Uh, I mean... Um, from, you know, from films. So Ojo al Cine, his magazine, uh, and the cine club that he started in Cali were the first serious look at cinema um, within Colombia at all. Um, but he was obsessed not only with cinema, but with reading. Um, um, he read, in the two days before he died, he read or reread um, 11 novels, um, from a variety uh, of languages. He was, um, he needed to inhale everything in life, and he did, and it was not perhaps necessarily good um, for his mental health. Um, right. <laughs> I think he lived life much too, that he was, I think he, he was much too exposed to everything that he felt. Um, yeah. um 
And I mean, he was not. A, he, yes, he was twenty-five, but he was a young twenty-five. It was the nineteen bloody seventies, for God's sake. You know, it was so difficult to be depraved in the nineteen seventies, um, even in the, one feels. Uh, yeah, and that the the book itself is is the story of a teenager from from high society um, who gets caught up in in La Rumba, which I'll say for simplicity is the party with a sort of capital T and a capital P, but I'd love to talk about that particular word a bit later on, um, Frank. But I'm going to leave it to you because I suspect that not enough of our listeners will have read this book. I'm going to leave it to you to read to read a little extract of your translation. Well, let me just explain very, very quickly. I mean, technically, when I first read this, stupidly committed to doing it within six months, it eventually took me more than two years to translate. I thought this was a story of a nice middle-class girl who's going to university, who drops out and, you know, takes drugs and has sex, and we've all been there. Actually, there is a story about that in there, but this is largely a war about music. Um, uh, Maria del Carmen Huerta uh, begins uh, her descent um, into um, the music that would have been common in Colombia at the time, which was um, the Beatles and the Stones and, you know, the music of, of 70s rock. I mean, there are mentions of Chicago and, you know, bands that, Thankfully, nobody remembers anymore. And mm. one night, in fact, at the party that I'm about to read a piece from, um, um, she becomes so bored with how wearying and how dull both the music is and the people listening to it. At this stage, they're all off their faces on heroin and just lying in the corner. Um, that she steps out and she crosses the road and as she crosses the road, she hears salsa, uh, and she ends up in another party. And she discovers what she believes to be um, her patria, her, her homeland, uh, which is la rumba, which is partying, which is all sorts of things. But it is, first and foremost, the musical legacy. So the party at which she is at the moment, she begins her um, uh, her confession rather than tale um, by telling us how blonde uh, um, she is um, um, but by this time in the book um, um, during this party she makes her realization gentle reader my hair lost its brilliance it turned from gold to ash not that anyone would notice it now as I tell my story because this hair has history my skin always so smooth and tanned became scabbed with bruises like scales for at least three days I was in a terrible state scamping around like an animal trying to get its strength back accepting outlandish invitations in the hope of discovering some new possibility I even agreed to attend a graduation dinner with my parents the main course was pork ribs, which I ate at politeness. My culture forbids it. I've always been intrigued by the Maccabees and their refusal to eat pork, by Moses's unconditional prohibition. And as a little girl, I'd been a bit scared stiff by the story, which everyone knew, but no one talked about, about how an aunt of mine died from worms in her brain after eating undercooked pork. I never knew how she felt towards the end. I've always kissed her when I came to visit, and the memory infects me to this day. Anyway... That cursed meat tasted so sweet. And for at least a month, I was convinced I had larvae hatching in my brain. I'll die a miserable death, I thought. No fate could be more symbolic for a child of the second half of the 20th century. 
but oh, I don't have the words to describe the joy I felt, the dimples that appeared in my cheeks as I walked back to poor Ricardito, who had spread his arms wide and was whispering comforting words to himself. I moved towards him, wreathed in colors, and my favorite color is green, the color of the world's envy at my happiness, black, the country of the sea that scares me, yellow, the color of summer in countries further north, the which I have never seen because I belong and I am bound to this land. Ricardito suggested taking me up to the first floor and showing me the rooms that he'd already explored. I don't know when, but he assured me they were fascinating. So I followed him and people saw him take me by the hand and they thought, ah, that's a tragic love story. And we climbed the stairs together as they rose, forming a perfect circle. What was he so eager to show me upstairs? A series of terribly empty rooms. I've been trying to get it on with you all day, he complained as we started up the stairs. Then later, I knew this house would be the perfect place for my ravishment. For your what? I stopped dead and turned to face him. For pulling the wings off a reckless butterfly, he muttered, embarrassed. No idea what you're talking about, I said harshly, and walked down the corridor, entranced now by these empty rooms. I thought, have his parents fled the country? And as I walked along the corridor, I felt a thousand feathery touches on my shoulders on my back. If he touches me any lower, I thought, I'll turn around and deck him. In the last room, there were mirrors strategically placed such that I could see myself on all, all four sides. I watched Ricardito step into each reflection, too shy to look at himself, and instead staring at me, fascinated by my fascination. In the middle of the room were large pieces of furniture covered in dust sheets, wardrobes or beds, beds, I thought. So this was where they were bouncing earlier, and I decided it would be a fantastic idea to try it myself. Come on, let's bounce on the bed, I dare you, I said. And he looked at me nervously. He didn't refuse, but I could see how he was weak and afraid. I decided to go first to prove to him how much stronger my sex can be, and I jumped and let myself fall back onto the nearest bed, the biggest one. And I remember Ricardito, his eyes out on stalks, making a vague, desperate attempt to catch me as I sailed through the air. The bed I landed on wasn't very springy. I'd got used to bouncing to an upward motion which should have followed my fall, forcing me to tense my neck and arch my whole body and give a gleam to my eyes so that when I felt myself not bouncing and not rising and not even bumping but sinking into something soft and uneven and still warm, I was terrified as though I'd suddenly ended up inside an aquarium and Ricardito was standing stunned on the other side of the glass making no attempt to help me and I didn't move a muscle. Just then I realized that on each side of my legs, chunks of flesh as real as my own living flesh had parted to make room for me. The nose was pressed into the back of my neck. Two enormous pairs of breasts pushed against my back. My bellowing, which no one heard downstairs, was joined by an ecstatic wail from Ricardito. To get up, I grabbed one end of the sheet and in a clean jerk split it in two. The moment of revelation lasted as long as it took for the sheet to fold in on itself, and I let it fall to the floor. In the double bed were three corpses, those of Dr. and Senora Augusto Flores, whom I'd regularly seen taking a turn in the park around seven o'clock, and the body of a girl who'd been like Flores's nanny before becoming a general skivvy, an Indian girl from the mountains of Silvia I'd never ever spoken to. That would have been all I needed, I thought, and then I said aloud, You think he invited us here to see the corpses? Amazing. So partying in Cali, as you can see, in the 1970s had very little to do uh, with, you know, what's strange about the story that Caicedo is creating is that 
and what what I discovered the moment I began to translate it. So, like I said, I thought, you know, simple story, girl goes to bad, you know, blah, blah, um, six months. But actually, every page, every line of this is suffused by other things. The opening uh, has bits of dialogue from Hitchcock's Psycho in it. Uh, There are deliberate references to uh, lines from short stories by Edgar Allan Poe. Um, And most importantly, at that crucial point in this party where she crosses the, the street and she ends up at her first rumba, which, as you say, is is something between a party and an orgy, and, um, and a religion, and yes, and and a religious experience. Mm-hmm. Um, the book slips away from Western music and Western culture and Western film, and becomes imbued by the music that it is talking about. So much so that there are whole passages in this book that are direct quotes from titles of salsa songs or lyrics of salsa songs, some of them misheard since you would never have seen the the lyrics published, and also because salsa and the various variations on it, all of which were invented in Cali, things like uh, Salsa Brava and Guaguanco and whatever, are purely Galenia inventions, uh, also draw on Semteria, which is um, uh, a syncretic religion which is part West African and part Christian, um, and which in turn draws on, particularly on the Yoruba language. Um, but then quite a lot of the people who write salsa songs, including Richie Ray and, and Bobby Cruz, who... who were the most famous people uh, doing this at the time, um, understood very little about Santeria and understood absolutely nothing about Yoruba. So I remember when I was trying to identify all of the quotes, I literally had to spend half my life Googling every image I thought looked odd to see whether it might be a quote from a song. or a, And I spent, you know, uh, 48 months no, 24 months, um, listening to um, to Salsa on loop and trying to make out what they were saying, which I'm afraid is, you know, kind of difficult. But it sounds happening. Yeah. But, <laughs> unless, I mean, one assumes you love Salsa? Um, I do now. Uh, I mean, <laughs> is that Salsa, prior to the, the... Part of the problem for an English language reader of this is that um, uh, the Anglo-American world has accepted salsa as um, um, something uh, to be played in the background while pregnant women do exercises to, you know, um, you know, um, help their pelvis. Um, uh, so actually, what salsa was, how extraordinarily radical it was, um, um, in the 50s and how much more radical it became through the 60s and 70s when Richie Ray and Bobby Cruz had left Cuba, were living in New York, and when when the world center of, of, of salsa became uh, Gali, um, was extraordinary uh, and has, you know, um, it is the sort of thing that would make, you know, viewers of Dirty Dancing, you know, one think that they were watching the Maquis de Sade, you know, this was all, um, it was extraordinarily sleazy uh, and quite deliberately so. Um, mm. But for uh, for Maria del Carmen, 
the music is about the dancing and the dancing is about the music and the music is about the words and the words is about the land. Uh, I mean, as, as she, as she goes on her downward descent, if we take, you know, Dante's Inferno, I mean, she is literally moving downwards because she starts in the middle-class neighborhoods up on the hill. Mm. And when, at, by the end of the novel, she's living in the flatland in the, in, in the middle of, of Cali. But her downward descent is a greater exploration of and a greater understanding of um, not just words and music and the physicality between people and life and death, but also the surrounding landscape, the extraordinary sequence that takes place in um, the valley, um, um, maybe eight, mm-hmm. ten miles outside of Cali, where uh, the, the litanies and litanies of uh, flowers and plants and so forth almost attempts to create, using words, an entire landscape. So, um, you know, when she says that this is, that this becomes her land, that this is her land, all of the arts basically fuse together as far as she's concerned. And all of those fuse with the music and the sex and the drug taking and the whatever. By the end of the novel, she needs nothing other than herself. Um, she has, at this stage, rejected everything. Uh, and actually, that brings us to what I refer to as the the invocation, which is. Uh, I had a couple of more questions before okay, we get. But, um, I have just a heads up to listeners. I've asked Frank to read my favourite passage um, at yeah. the end of our recording because it is. Yeah. It be. I have quite a well thumbed and very well marked copy of your translation um, with me in Medellin, and that page is it's looking pretty ropey. I may even need a new copy soon, um, but I. I'm slightly intrigued by the the timing. So this novel is written in the 70s. And Penguin come to you in the, the 2010s asking for a translation. And, and why? Okay, um, there is nothing... Nothing is more like catnip to a publisher's ears than the two words, lost classic. Right. Um, by and large, publishers only really publish what is referred to as frontlist, so pub- books that have recently been published in other languages, other cultures. It's very difficult to get them interested in um, an older book from, uh, and particularly in translation. The only way to do it is lost classic. Actually, Gaisedo would have more or less disappeared from print, but for. Uh, three people, uh, his sister Rosario, Salvador Romero, and Luis Ospina. After Gaicedo's death, they were the people who ensured the publication of his short stories and of his plays and who kept them uh, published and in print. Uh, Sandro and Luis uh, together uh, made a documentary film about him and wrote a very long and hugely helpful book when I was translating this. I mean, the book itself had not been translated into English, but it was hugely important for me because it it gave me a way of finding myself around. And at the time, for uh, until the early 2000s, the book had only, not only had the book only been published in Spanish, it had only been published in in South America. It had never been published in Spain. Almost all uh, English language publishing from Latin America comes through Barcelona, which is where the main Spanish publishing hub is, in the same way that all of African 
French publishing, whether from Algeria or Côte d'Ivoire or whatever, uh, comes through Paris. If you're not published in France, then the chances that you will find an English language publisher is very small. And Andres had never been published at the time in Spain. So um, he was a living legend in Colombia. And if you take concentric circles going outwards, he was quite well known in in Peru, in Argentina, in etc., uh, etc. Et um, he was vaguely well-known in Mexico, and then that's it. So he had not been translated into any language at the time. And at the time, what happened is one of the sisters, possibly Rosario, I'm not sure, um, but uh, persuaded a New York agent to take on the rights. Um, and what I did not know at the time, and would have been hugely helpful, uh, was the New York agent um, specialised in, in, in the rights to Hispanic uh, fiction, sold the book to five publishers simultaneously, the English to Penguin, uh, French, uh, Dutch, uh, Italian, and there's one more, probably Portuguese. Oh, no, just the, no, just the Spanish rights, which were sold to Spain. So five editions were going to be coming out simultaneously. Now, if I had known that, then I could have been in touch with the Dutch translator, the Italian translator, and the French translator, and we could have worked through the extraordinary piece of of literary and musical archaeology that this involved together, but nobody told me. Um, Penguin had bought it because they heard the words lost classic, <laughs> um, they had not asked for a reader's report. They had no idea what the book was until I did. Wow. No. Because what's what's interesting about this connection with Penguin is that they've only got one other Colombian author that they do in translation, which is Marquez. Yeah. Um, um, and a Chilean uh, journalist I was reading describes Caicedo as enemigo numero uno de Macondo, yeah. enemy number one of Macondo as a sort of total antithesis to Marquez or even a reaction against him. No, he was very much. Um, so um, Caicedo, like uh, Tomás González and later um, Juan Gabriel Vázquez, um, were all reacting against Marquez. I mean, not because, not specifically because they hated uh, Marquez, but because the Latin American boom had created this monstrous thing that seemed to say there was only one way to write, which was, you know, mm. the concept of the total novel. They weren't interested in that. And also, certainly uh, what um, uh, what Andres felt and what, um, and what later Juan Gabriel and, and, and Tomás uh, González felt is that writers like Marquez used their writing to... Um, to gloss over the struggles of real people. Um, there are lots of poor people in Marquez novels, but they lead magical realist lives where they're all kind of happy being poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not about um, any genuine struggle. And they found that partially offensive, but they also felt that literature had a duty, Latin American literature had a duty to tell the stories of people in their own voices rather than um, in this in this other voice. So yes, no. The, the the oddest thing is that you know Penguin bought this novel 
uh, which they were then going to publish as a Penguin classic, having no idea really what it was. And as you say, publishing only one other Colombian author. Um, I mean, he's certainly the youngest person ever to have been published as Penguin classic um, Mm -hmm. because he was... 25 when he died um and of course he only has the one book um as a penguin classic because they never decided to to pursue it any farther whereas actually the french publisher um whose name escapes me at the moment did carry on and published a number of of um of the the collections of short stories i was reading a a quote by anthony burgess that says translation is not a matter of words only it is a matter of making intelligible a whole culture. But I think it's also a matter of making intelligible or at least accessible an entire personal psychology. And this book is, you know, it's very, if you if you do really get absorbed in it, which I, you know, had no option but to do, it is brilliant. It's very disturbing. And you spent two years, I mean, not, not that I would ever compare your work to my undergraduate ramblings, but my... My dissertation at university was Philip Roth. I read 32 novels by this man who is, you know, mildly preoccupied with his relationships with younger women. Um, and I was 21. I started having these vivid nightmares that I was trapped in a relationship with a much older man. I and I had to to many, many younger women who were trapped in a relationship with Philip Roth. Mm, I feel, yeah, and I, I was sort of so wrapped up in this psychology of his that, you know, my subconscious was screaming at me at night. I was in my dreams writing postcards to break up with this older partner um, because apparently that's what my head decided was how you break up with an older man. I have no rational explanation for this, but this particular book, even on one reading, I felt I felt quite unsettled for a few days. So how, how did you keep it together for two years, being wrapped up in um, this? Well, I mean, I, did, I couldn't work on it full-time. Once I realised, ex- basically, I had originally agreed to deliver it within six months. At the end of six months, I requested a meeting with the editor, uh, so me, the editor, and my, um, and my agent. And I showed him four pages of my first draft, Mm-hmm. with all of the notes attached to them. There were more than 200 notes in those four, in those wow. four pages yeah. of stuff that I'd had to go and find and do and, and, uh, and whatever. So I said, okay. He said, well, what do you want to do? I mean, should we just give it up? I said, no. I need more time. I need two years. Um, and I need more money. And he said, Quite you right. can have more time. Uh, I think he gave me a little bit more money. The thing is, it's a very short book, so the money involved in this is, is minor. I mean, I'm paid per thousand words. You know, so it's not, nobody says how long did it take to, you to do it. I'm not paid by the hour. If it's a really difficult book and it takes me forever to do, then I need to be also translating books that I can translate very quickly. Um, right, right. Uh, that don't take this out of me. So I did end up, uh, so basically I had, some other book that I would be working on, which I was getting through because I needed to eat. And uh, then I would on, I would have a day or sometimes two days a week when I would come back to this and you would start the ritual. And I would, uh, I would, you know, um, you know, wrong country, but I would make some mate because I uh, originally started translating it when I was in, in Argentina. 
uh, and I would put on some salsa and I would start again and I would um, uh, but interestingly I did not get I mean I spent a lot of time in in you know I'd spent more than 10 years living in 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 in, in bits of Latin America but I had never been to Colombia until after I had translated this book right I could have literally taken you on a walking tour of Cali and its surroundings by the time I got there. Um, it actually felt like coming home, if by coming home you mean coming home to the sort of city you don't want to live in and you left for a good reason. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, so, um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, all of that. I mean, bits of, bits of his uh, Cali are no, are no longer there. Um, um, but... Um, but the cinema is still there. Um, and um, um, no, I had a very clear sense of her. I mean, I also read quite a lot of his other stuff at the time um, because mm. it seemed a, a useful way of of getting inside his head. And that's where I began to realize quite how how much this stream of consciousness is is about culture, but it's also about ideas and sometimes it's just about rhythm and sometimes it's just about an image and um it's not constructed it's not constructed in any form of realist style i mean the, the general reaction away from um uh, from garcia marquez was a kind of realism this is even in its early realistic phase when she's you know um, going to read Das Kapital um, with um, the cricket and whatever. Mm. There's nothing realistic about this. From the moment she walks up and takes the first inching steps to the, the window and look, peers through the Venetian blinds and thinks about death and thinks the mountains look like knees, the knees of a black person, <laughs> and you're thinking, this is some fucking weird shit. <laughs> Um, that was certainly my reaction, yeah. <laughs> um, and and it only and it only goes, you know, up and downhill from there. I mean, that is the beginning of what is. Um, I mean, I I have in the end, I, I ended up thinking of the entire book as a piece of music when I was doing a second and third mm. draft. A lot of what I was thinking was how this fit together musically, how the words fit together musically, how the sentences ran together musically. Um, because, I mean, anyone who could read this in Spanish, I would seriously recommend they read this in Spanish. It is one of those texts that actually, you know, when people say something is lost in translation, what they don't usually mean is cadence or the ability to identify salsa lyrics. Um, but there is, there is a musical thread that runs through all of this. And if you lose that during the translation the whole thing falls falls apart because that is the one thing that is holding it together. And she is simply a moving form that pulls this, this thread of music um, through the whole book, um, mm. you know, from the first, you know, faltering, um, badly sung uh, versions of the Rolling Stones to this extraordinary sort of cacophony um, that you, you come to at the end where every second sentence is 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 peppered with bits of of her cultural heritage as she insists on calling it in good communist <laughs> um, parlance great well thank you so much for joining us frank i want i want to end completely with your voice so i'm going to sign uh -huh. out and hand over to you 
Um, so Frank's going to read my favourite, and I, I believe the most bonkers and brilliant passage of this book. Um, so thank you very much for being with us, Frank. Um, I'm sure I'll speak to you soon. Um, but to our listeners, thanks for listening. And I'm going to hand over now. Ignore the trappings of fame. Leave something of yourself behind and die in peace, trusting a few close friends. Let no one turn you into a grown-up or respectable person. Never stop being a child, even when you've got your eyes in the back of your head and your teeth are starting to fall out. Your parents gave birth to you. Let them support you forever. Fob them off with empty promises. Who gives a fuck? Never save for the future. Never let yourself become someone serious. Make heedlessness and fickleness your rules of contact. Refuse all truces. Make your home amid ruins, excess and trembling. The world is yours. You are entitled to everything. Charge the earth for it. Never allow yourself to feel satisfied. Learn never to lose your vision, never to succumb to the short-sightedness of those who live in cities. Arm yourself with dreams so that you can never lose your vision. Forget that someday you might ever attain what people call normal sexuality and never hope that love will bring you peace. Sex is an act of the shadows and falling in love, a union of torments. Never expect that you will one day come to understand the opposite sex. There is nothing more different and less inclined to reconciliation. Listen. Practice fear, rape, struggle, violence, perversion, and the anal route if you believe that satisfaction depends on tightness and a dominant position. If you prefer to withdraw from all sexual congress, so much the better. For the hatred instilled in you by the censor, there is no better cure than murder, for shyness, self-destruction. The rhythms of solitude are best acquired in cinemas. Learn to shun cinemas. Never succumb to remorse or to the pettiness of social climbing. Better to fall to become an outcast, to end a long, undistinguished career in dreary dissolution, to harden your skull, practice beating it against brick walls. There is no moment more intense, more agonizing than a man walking at dawn. Complicate and draw out this moment. Waste away within it. You will slowly die and bellowing learn to face each new day. It's sensible to listen to music before breakfast. Listen, Conceal oblivion. Learn to stoically contemplate each beginning. If you are tempted by evil, give in. You'll end up spinning on the same axis. Eat everything that's harmful to your liver. Green mango mushrooms and salt with everything. And learn to wake up with the worms. Become a saber tree providing food for parasites. Never worry. Die before your parents despair them the ghastly sight of your old age. And look for me whenever all is grey. And no one suffers. We are legion.